Lord, um, we come before you and ask you, God, to meet us where we are at today. We know that your presence is here. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd move on our hearts, challenge us, draw us to you through your kindness, convict us if needed, Lord. Jesus, your name that we just sung of is exactly what we declared. It's a powerful name. It's a name above all names. At your name, uh, we bow down. We confess that you are Lord, you're in control, you're in charge, you reign, you rule, you're Savior, you're King, you're God in the flesh. Jesus, I ask that you'd rebuke any evil spirit or intrusive thought that's here today in the name of Jesus so that someone would be able to encounter you, where instead they've only been encountering chaos, fear, distraction, even destruction. Father, would you be honored by every word that is spoken today? Father, would your will be done here in in this church, in our hearts, in our homes, in the city? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, we ask that you would provide for all of our needs. We ask that you would uh, heal any illness uh, and that you would lift every soul as we would submit ourselves under your rule this morning. We're here for you. We're here, Lord, to, to learn from you, about you, and receive more of you. As I continue in, in this moment of prayer, just God put on my heart as we were worshiping that there are some people here, maybe you're watching online, where you don't know if God is, is real. It might seem like a weird thing to say, but that just really came strongly into my heart that you don't know if this is real. You're not sure why you come to church or why you're here today. Um, because you're questioning whether or not what we're doing is legit or it's real. What we're doing doesn't matter. It's what God's doing that matters. And God, God is very real. Uh, there is a point where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's a question all of you must answer. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus Christ? He is, Scripture says, born of a virgin, the Son of God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a death in your place, in my place, a death that you and I deserve to die. And he rose from the grave. And so through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, your sins can be forgiven, your relationship with God restored, the Spirit of God dwell within you and be given everlasting life. And that is a wonderful gift of grace that God gives, and it's received in faith at that name, the name of Jesus. And so if you came in wondering, is this real God? Are you real? Do you care? Do you hear me? When Jesus asked that question, who do people say that I am? Peter, um, the dumb disciple, he said, you are the Christ. That means you're, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the sent one. You're the chosen one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, meaning he was equal in all authority to God himself because Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus looked at Peter and didn't say, Peter, your, your faith is weak. He didn't say, Peter, um, you're wrong. He, he said, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but it was my Father who is in heaven. And the Lord hears your doubts this morning, and, and the Lord encourages you wrestling with doubt. Doubt's okay. Doubt can be overcome by the power of Jesus Christ. If you're wrestling with doubt and you came in today not knowing, what, what's this all about? Why am I even doing this Christian thing? Why am I even in church? Jesus speaks through his words in Matthew 16. It says, it's not flesh or blood that ultimately reveals to us who Jesus is. It's the Father who reveals to us who Jesus is. And my prayer for you today is that God the Father would reveal to you who Jesus is, and he'd do that by the power of his Spirit. And so I want to just close this time in prayer it's time of prayer and prayer, and, and we're going to get into our message. But if you could just bow your heads so you eliminate the distraction. If you'd say, uh, Pastor, that is me. Today I did come in questioning, why are you real? God, are you for me? God, do you even care? If that's you, I just, I just want you to press into God right now as I pray over you. Lord, for those who doubt, for those who question, thank you, God, 
that this is a safe place for them to do that. Thank you, God, that you are a safe presence for them to wrestle with doubt next to. God, I pray that as they wrestle and question and doubt, as we all do, that your spirit would reveal to them who you are. God, may each person today leave knowing you by a personal encounter they have, not by knowledge, not by what they can figure out in their mind, but that they would not be able to deny how you have touched their life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll wrap up our service after the message today with a time of prayer. And if, if that's you, if you're today, if you're wrestling, um, worrying, doubting, wondering, I want to invite you when we conclude today just to come up and receive prayer, have us lay hands on you and pray for you. I want to spend a lot of time in ministry as we finish up this sermon uh, today that we're going to be going into. Um, quick announcement I have for you, as Ladina mentioned, Easter is coming up on April the 9th. And so here's our service times for Easter um, service times for Easter, we're doing a one-hour only Easter service at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. So our times are different, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We will have kids' programs at all services, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Uh, we'll have the same amount of music and worship as normal. We'll have a shorter message, an invitation to receive Christ, and then we'll also be doing water baptisms. If you'd like to take your next step in your faith with Christ and be baptized in water, you can sign up to do that on our app. And we'll be doing baptisms during that service. What a fantastic day to be baptized. We'll have a lot of snacks for you and things like that. We'll have a photo booth to celebrate Easter with your family. But ultimately, we're here to celebrate the risen Christ. And our theme for Easter is just simply the idea of new. What does it mean to be new in Christ, to be a new creature, a new being? What does it mean to be new, to experience something new? So I want to encourage you to invite your friends and family to come with you to Easter. It's the easiest invite of the year to invite someone to attend church with you on Easter. And um, I would please ask you as well, if, as many of you that come to this service, if you could please, 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 please go to 830, we could really uh, benefit from that so we can make more space for these later services. And so if you like waking up early like I do, then 830 is for you. And we'll make it worth your while at 8.30. So come, come at 8.30. We need to spare some room for those later services. So 8.30 is your time to worship on Easter. And if you can't come at 8.30, then if you could come at 11.30 instead of 10, that would be fantastic too. But if you have to come to 10, we'll be here at 10 also. Three, three services to choose from. We're in this uh, series on the book of Daniel. Two big ideas in this book from the Old Testament is that God sovereignly is orchestrating human history despite the actions of man, and that we are to live for God, live in exile, live for God in an ungodly world like Daniel and his friends did. Um, quick recap of the book of Daniel is that Daniel, his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, his three friends, and thousands of other Judean people are exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar from Judah all the way to Babylon in the year 605 BC. Over the next 19 years, Nebuchadnezzar would attack Jerusalem a total of three times, take with him upwards of 15 to 20,000 people from Judah to Babylon to live in exile. We've discussed how Daniel and his friends rejected food from the king's table as a way to stand out. They received promotion for standing out. We discussed Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue that Daniel interprets. We discussed Nebuchadnezzar building a statue to receive worship to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down. They're thrown into a furnace. The Lord rescues them. They themselves are promoted. And then we discussed how Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that Daniel interprets that he will live like a wild beast in a period of severe mental illness for a period of seven seasons, seven years, we don't know exactly how long, if he did not humble himself. And he did not humble himself. He lived in the wild, and God then restored him to power, and he gives credit to God. And the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar is in Daniel chapter 4, where he literally gives a testimony of how he now praises the God of all creation and not the gods of Babylon. So we pick today up uh, with the life of Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, the end of the life of Nebuchadnezzar, because we know exactly when Nebuchadnezzar dies. He dies on October the 2nd of 562 BC at 80 years old. So Nebuchadnezzar dies at 80, October 2nd, 562 BC. 
and his third-born son, Emil Marduk, would take his place as king. We touched on that a little bit last week. But today we're going to be talking about complicated family relationships and epic parties, because those things don't go hand in hand. Um, but, but they do in this story. We're going to talk about the complex intricacies of Nebuchadnezzar's family, and then we're going to talk about epic parties. And sometimes it is hard to describe to people how it is that you are related to them, where we might just say they are our aunt, our uncle, our grandfather, our grandmother, our first cousin once removed. We try to describe how people are related. And um, Ladina Doherty and I have this kind of ongoing joke along with Paula Lehman of how you describe how people are related. And it's actually complicated to do, but I will attempt to do this here. So if I was talking about my wife, Susan, and if I was trying to describe to someone how she is my wife, I would say, for example, that um, my great-nephew Bentley's mom's mom's sister-in-law is my wife, is a way of describing family by a complex scenario. And sometimes we do this and we can make it very simple. And the Nebuchadnezzar family tree, if you will, is a little bit complicated because there's a lot of warring going on in this family to get into the throne. And so back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son, Abel Marduk, takes the throne. And Abel Marduk um, would reign for an epic 22 months. For, for almost two years, he would be king. And the reason he would only reign for 22 months is because he would then be assassinated between the dates of August 7th and August the 11th of 560 BC, assassinated by his very own brother-in-law named Nereglesar. So Nereglesar murders his brother-in-law so that he can take the throne. And the, the reason or the way these two are related is Nereglesar is married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter likely Nebuchadnezzar's oldest daughter. So Nereglesar is Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law who just murdered his brother-in-law to be king. And he would reign for three years and eight months before dying of natural causes during the month of April, 556 BC. And so who would take the throne? Well, his, his son, Labashi Marduk. Labashi Marduk would be this epic king of Babylon who would reign for a total of about 30 days. <laughs> for about a month, he would be in power. And I actually have a slide that shows some of the list of kings, but Amal Marduk would, would reign for about 30 days. And the reason why he only reigns for a month is because he would be assassinated in May 556 by a general in Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar is the son of a man named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is another son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, which means that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So we could have just said that. The, the person in this story, Belshazzar, is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and his father, Nebuchadnezzar, is Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. So, Labashi Marduk is murdered by his cousin, Belshazzar. And when Belshazzar kills his own cousin, he then hands the keys, so to say, of the kingdom of Babylon over to his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was Labashi's uncle, so he takes the power from his, um, his own brother-in-law becomes king. And Nebuchadnezzar actually would be king of Babylon for a very long time, almost as long as Nebuchadnezzar was king. He reigned for 17 years, beginning May of 556. 17 years he would be king, but only a few years into his reign as king, Nebuchadnezzar would strangely become obsessed with archaeology, of all things. He's known as the archaeologist king. He became obsessed with learning things about the history and ancestry of the people surrounding him. And so he went on a kind of a self-exile to Saudi Arabia, what we would call Saudi Arabia today, for about 10 years. He lives in exile um, doing literal archaeology digs. 
And he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in control for those 10 years. Belshazzar is an amazing military commander, but he's not a very good politician. And people don't like him because he's kind of changing which Babylonian gods get the most credit within the Babylonian empire. But his father, Nabonidus, would come back to Babylon in 543 B.C. And when Nabonidus returned in 543 B.C., both him and Belshazzar would be like co-regents. They were like co-kings of Babylon together. And it looks like Belshazzar was really the king, and his dad kind of played second trumpet to him. But while Nabonidus was away, while he was gone for 10 years, while this is transpiring, while he's off on archaeological digs, A man by the name of Cyrus the Great is amassing an enormous global power in his newly formed Persian Empire. He was from the region of Media, and the Medes and the Persians had joined into one massive force. And they became this emerging threat to Babylon. And so the most likely reason that Nabonidus goes back to Babylon is because There is this threat. The area where Nabonidus is digging is probably under attack by Persia. And Cyrus the Great is constantly attacking and infringing upon the borders of Babylon. And this brings us to the party that we're going to talk about today. This is the stage that the party is set on. Nabonidus is king. His son reigns as king with him. Persia was an emerging threat to the entire known world, which brings us to October the 12th, 539 B.C. How many of you remembered what you were doing October 12th, let alone what was going on October 12th over 2,500 years ago? On October 12th, 539 B.C., Belshazzar throws an epic party. How many of you have been to an epic party before? Um, Maybe the epic party is one you are ashamed to raise your hand that you went to this epic party. What made it epic? How many of you went to a party that went south real quick? It it ended up in a fight. It ended up with drama with a couple at the party. It ended up with um, someone that just completely drank way too much. It's that holiday work party. It's like they really shouldn't have let them drink at the holiday work party. We don't know if they're going to still be employed on Monday. We've all been to just some interesting parties these epic parties that people throw. And so Belshazzar throws this epic party and he invites only about a thousand people, a thousand people to this party, a thousand of his greatest commanders, including all of his wives and all of his concubines, because nothing dramatic can happen in that mixture going on of a thousand of your closest wives, concubines, and political officials. And so they do as what is often done in parties is they all get drunk. And as they get drunk, Belshazzar has this wonderful idea. Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, says, I've got an idea. My grandpa, 60 years ago, he ransacked the temple in Jerusalem, and he brought all the gold and silver and bronze utensils that were used for service of Yahweh, the God of Israel, And he has them stored up in his storehouse. So let's take them out. And since we're already drinking, let's drink out of the vessels of the worship of Yahweh from the temple because that's a great idea, right? It'd be like saying, let's break into the church, take all the communion cups and get drunk, which actually happens in the New Testament. Paul's like, that's not good either. Bad things happen at parties. And so they bring in the vessels and they start to drink and get more and more drunk with the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible says while they're partying, they're actually in doing so worshiping the gods of Babylon, specifically Belshazzar's newly established God, which is ironically named um, Sin. They're worshiping. And so there they are partying, worshiping, all the while Babylon is under attack. Babylon is under attack by King Cyrus's growing forces, and Belshazzar is too busy partying to even care. And he's mocking God in the process by using the vessels from God's temple. And fast forwarding about 500 years to the New Testament, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also 
God's telling us you can only sin for so long without reaping what you have sown in sin. And so here, Belshazzar is about to very much reap what he has sown in the most bizarre of ways. How many of you are from Generation X or the predecessors of Generation X, the the great boomers? How many of you, that's what you are? I'm a Generation X guy, and some of you are boomer guys and girls. And how many of you boomers or Generation X people, you grew up enjoying um, the black and white, theologically accurate classic sitcom, The Addams Family? Um, you have Morticia, just loves it. Uh, her husband loves when she speaks French and Gomez and Wednesday. And um, that, that was your Adam's family. But some of you are millennials. How many of you are millennials? Like you're millennial and your Adam's family was the movie. Your Adam's family was the movie with Christina Ricci playing Wednesday. And they had the, the camp sequel as well, which is actually a very good movie as well. But how many of you are Gen Z? And your Adams family is the Wednesday Netflix series with Jenna Ortega. And like, that's my Adams family. And so all of us, you might have different Adams family. And some of you are like, Pastor, that's pagan. I don't enjoy the Adams family. I instead like watching blood and gore and sex on, Long, or on uh, Yellowstone instead. Okay, to each his own. <laughs> and so my favorite character on all the iterations of the Adams family is really the most fantastic character of all uh, it's a five-fingered character by the name of Thing. And Thing is a disembodied hand. How many of you would actually like to have a pet that was self-aware, self-conscious, um, sentient, and able to communicate that was a disembodied hand? I would. The jokes would be endless. Um, our friends Chiago and Danny De Silva, if they're watching today, um, hello, Chiago and Danny, um, their daughter, Alana, her and I have this long-standing joke from when she was like six months old that I had this mannequin hand that I would put into my shirt and shake her hand with it and then like pull it out. She'd be left with my hand and she was like, and then um, every time I talk with them on, on Skype or talk with them in person, she literally remembers and is like, where's your hand? I'm like, oh yes, it's a miracle. It's grown back. Thank you, Jesus. Um, disembodied hands are wonderful. So this disembodied hand, Belshazzar is about to reap what he sows. Belshazzar did not learn from the humiliation of his grandfather. And as they're drinking from the cups from the temple, a disembodied hand just stumbles into the room. And we don't know if the disembodied hand is floating, walking on its fingers, we don't know how big the disembodied hand is. I, I imagine it being like the size of an entire human. We don't know if this disembodied hand is transparent or solid, but either way, there is a disembodied hand at the party. That's a sign that you're, you're at not so great of a party when the disembodied hand starts showing up. And the disembodied hand comes up, and it says on the opposite side of the lamps, it begins to write into the plaster on the wall. This makes me think it's a big hand. There, there's something about this hand that is very not normal, and it, it's etching into the plaster. And that supernatural, spooky, disgusting, horrifying, giant, disembodied hand writes the words, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Parson. Because that's how the hand talks, is like that. If, that's what, if there's a disembodied hand, that's how I imagine it talking. Many, many tackle parts. What the heck? What, do you, what, what does that mean? Everybody at the party would have known what that was. They didn't know what it meant, but they all would have known what it was. Many, many tekel parts, and these are different denominations or specifically weights of Babylonian money, specifically the mina, the shekel, and the half shekel. So it would be as if a disembodied hand came into our sanctuary now and started writing on the back wall, dime, nickel, penny. For those of you who would not be so terrified as to run out, I'd want to stick around and see what does dime, nickel, penny mean? Now, this is another language, and the literal transliteration definition of this mini, mini tekel parson, it's this. It is number, weight, divide. Number, way, divide. Number, way, divide. That's what the actual words mean. 
But people wouldn't have thought of them as number, weight, divide. People would have just thought of them as a, a mina, a shekel, a half shekel. Just like when we say dime, we don't think that that word actually means a tenth. We just think it's a dime. And so this is the word that's written on the wall. And Belshazzar, as I would be, is absolutely terrified. This, this sobers him up incredibly fast. And he calls for all of the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the astrologers, the wise men to come and interpret what this dime, nickel, penny message is on the wall. And none of them can determine what it is. And, and all of a sudden, his mom finds out about the party. How many of you, your party ended when your mom found out? So his mom finds out about the party and she rushes into the party as she hears about this terrifying event and she says, Belshazzar, remember your grandpa? Yeah, my dad? Well, he knew of a guy. And in fact, Belshazzar, your dad, Nabonidus, also knows about this guy that apparently they've forgotten about since grandpa died. And his name is Belteshazzar or Daniel. So we find Daniel here probably in his late 60s to mid-70s. They bring Daniel into this party. I can just imagine Daniel showing up as like this detective. He's like, all right, survey the scene. There's the mini, mini shekel person on the wall. And Daniel begins um, to approach the subject. But before he comes, this is what the queen says to her son. She says, oh, king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change because he went white like a ghost. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, I mean your grandfather, in the days of your grandpa, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, your grandfather, the king, made him a chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel who the king named Belteshazzar. So call Daniel, and he will show you the interpretation. Now, I want to point out that God is orchestrating history, and there's some, there some funny word things happening here. One funny word thing that's happening is Belteshazzar is Daniel's Babylonian name, but the name of the co-regent king is Belshazzar. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Belteshazzar means Oh, lady, save the king. Specifically, the lady that we're crying, oh, lady, to is the wife of the pagan god, Bel. So, oh, wife of the god, Bel, save the king. But Belshazzar's name means, oh, Bel, save the king. This, just a little bit of difference. And so it's fascinating here that a lady, the queen, is calling upon the man whose name is, O Lady, save the king, to save the king, the king in which his name is, O Bell, save the king. There's, just, there's always stuff going on beneath the text. It's fascinating. So Daniel shows up. And Belshazzar says, Daniel, if you can figure out this riddle, I'm going to give you a fantastic prize. What is it? Well, here's what it's going to be. A robe and a ring. Oh, geez, thanks, Belshazzar. You can be the third in command. He says third because it'd be Nabonidus, Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. And he's like, I was already second in command under the reign of your grandpa. No big deal. I'll interpret this whole hand thing, but I don't need anything. Give it to somebody else. Here he chooses. I'm going to stand out. I'm not going to fit in. I'm not playing these games anymore. I'm an old man. I've done this. I'll just tell him what the interpretation is. And so he lays it on Belshazzar and he says this. O king. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the people's nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wanted, he killed. Whoever he wanted, he kept alive. Whoever he wanted, he raised up. And whoever he wanted, he humbled. He says, your grandpa was a pretty powerful king. God put him in power. And I actually became cool with him. We were kind of friends towards the end. Verse 20, Belshazzar, but when your grandpa's heart was lifted up and when his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, your grandfather was brought down from his kingly throne and the glory was taken from him. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over him whom he will. That's the whole theme. God's orchestrating history. So Daniel tells Belshazzar, your grandpa was all that, but it went to his head. God humbled him. God restored him. He then gave credit to God. And in the verse 22, Daniel's going to bring it in a little bit heavier. He says, and you, his son, remember, it's his grandson, you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, you knew all these stories, your, your grandpa had to have told you. Your mom had to have told you these things. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which don't even see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose hand is all of your ways. You have not honored that God. You, you get what's happening here. The hand of God shows up and writes this message. Daniel's saying, you want to know what the message that the hand wrote is, but you need to recognize that your very life is in the hands of God. This is not something to mess around with. What you have sown, you are going to reap. God can't be mocked, Belshazzar. You want to know what the writing is, but you need to know that God could snuff your life out in an instant. So now he's going to give the interpretation. So Belshazzar, from God's presence, the hand was sent. There's, there's very intentional plan words. God's hand has your life, so he sent a hand to show you. God's hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, shekel, parson. That's the voice of the hand. This is the interpretation of that matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Wow. That's not what I saw. I just saw a dime nickel penny. But if you were to turn these nouns into verbs... They become the message of this, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. They're coming to an end. Now, we don't know why numbered is written twice. I think it means this is an imperative. It means it's going to happen, and it's going to happen immediately, two times. Numbered, numbered, tekel, weighed. You've been weighed, and you're lacking. The, the, tails, the, the scales have tipped, not in your favor. Parson, divided. Your kingdom is divided, and parson sounds a lot like the Babylonian word for Persian. So your kingdom is divided, and you will be given to the Persians. And so Belshazzar hears the message, and he's such an idiot that this is his response. Here's the robe and the ring. Hooray! No, 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 no. You, you're missing out. Don't you see that your kingdom is, is about to end? And and you're going to put a robe and a ring on my finger? Okay. But while this party is playing out, while this party is going on, the city was being breached. The kingdom was literally being taken over while the party is happening. You see, over the last few months, King Cyrus and the Persians had dug trenches out of the Euphrates River so that when they broke down the dikes they had built the trenches with, that the river would have rushed into the trenches and the actual riverbed would have been dry like a highway. That's actually happening now to the Euphrates River, if you look that up, by the way. You see, the trenches were dug, and Gobirus, one of Cyrus's governors, or generals, I'm sorry, one of Cyrus's generals, 
leads an army of tens of thousands into the city of Babylon through the very dried up river channel that very night. Probably earlier in the day, they broke down the dikes and the water filled the trenches so that they could walk right through. And the reason I said this happened on October 12th is because this is recorded all throughout cultures within that time period. They all recorded the events of that night. There's artwork. There's entire books written about it. Archaeologists have even found the receipt from a contractor who fixed a gate in this battle. That's how exact data, that's how much we have from this particular night and this particular event. Um, The Greek historian Herodotus wrote of this event. The Greek historian Xenophon wrote an entire book on King Cyrus the Great called Chiropedia. And I'd like to read to you a little portion of this book um, to show that, like, this night happened. This thing the Bible talks about, it happened, and we know some explicit detail about it. Who wants to have a good day today? Raise your hand. Okay. Who, who does not want to have a good day today? Ladina does not want to have a good day because she knows, she knows what's coming. At 9 a.m., I said it's 9 a.m., I'm going to read this account in an accent because it is March the 19th. It was a wonderful day yesterday, and I came to church to enjoy my time and not be bored humor me. So Xenophon writes this in his biography, Chiropedia. Thereupon they entered, and of those they met, some were struck down and slain, and others fled into their houses, and some raised the hue and the cry. But Gobirus and his friends covered the cry with their shouts as though they were revelers themselves. And thus, my accent's going to change a little bit. (laughs) And thus, making their way by the quickest route, they soon found themselves before the king's palace. Here the detached under Gobirus and Gadatus found the gates closed. But the men appointed to attack the gods rushed on them as they lay drinking round a blazing fire and closed with them then and there. As the din grew louder and louder, those within became aware of the tumult until the king, bidding them see what it meant, some of them opened the gates and ran out. Gadatus and his men, seeing the gates swing wide, they darted straight in hard on the heels of the others who fled, and again they chased them down at the sword's point into the presence of the king. They found him on his feet with his drawn simcler in his hand, and by sheer weight of numbers they overwhelmed him, and not one of his retinue escaped. They were all cut down, some flying, some snatching up anything to serve as a shield and defending themselves as best as they could. (laughs) All right. Hopefully you'll remember the reading of that. Please don't. Please don't. Please stop. The next two verses in Daniel chapter 5, after describing Daniel's promotion with the ring and the robe, verse 30 says this, that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Darius was about 62 years old. So Daniel and the historian Xenophon both describe, and Xenophon in detail, describe the death of Belshazzar that night. 
Other historians have recorded that Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was actually shown mercy by King Cyrus. King Cyrus is an interesting guy. The Jews thought he was a hero. But they let Nabonidus live and actually sent him back to the Arabian Peninsula to live out the rest of his days. And he actually lived to be a very old man into his hundreds and outlived even King Cyrus the Great. But there's a lot of disagreement amongst different historians as to whether or not a battle was waged. If a war was fought for Babylon at the hands of the Persians, most historians actually say it doesn't look like it. Babylonians and Persians both recorded there was no fights. Where the Greeks say there was a fight. Either way, there's only one verified casualty of that very night, and it was Belshazzar himself the man who puffed himself up with pride, the man who mocked God most high, the man who was throwing a party while he was losing grip on his kingdom, the man who did not learn the lessons of his grandfather, and the man who was unable to read the writing on the wall. That's where that phrase comes from. He was unable to read it. So God uses Persia and Cyrus the Great to bring judgment upon Belshazzar and on his kingdom of his grandfather because Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had judged Judah for her sins against God. They had judged Assyria for judging Israel for her sins against God. And God would later judge Persia by using Alexander the Great in Rome, and then God would judge um, or Alexander the Great in Greece, and God would judge the Greek Empire by using the Romans, and so on, and so on, and so on. But there's some discrepancy between history and the Bible here that I want to point out, and that's that every historical record says that this was all done at the hands of Cyrus the Great, the Mede from Persia. But the Bible says a different name. Did you catch that? It says that it was a man by the name of Darius who actually reigned in that kingdom. And so um, Bible scholars and historians have tried to figure out who is the identity of this Darius. And, and what it seems is that Darius was a name or a title that either um, Cyrus gave himself that would match the Babylonian culture that had been absorbed, or that possibly the Jews gave to him this title of Darius. Or it's also possible that Gobirus, the general, could have taken on the title of Darius as well. But I think, and actually I'm almost certain of it, that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. And the reason that's very evident to me is because in Daniel 5, verse 31, it says that Darius was 62 years old when he conquered Babylon. And that's the exact same age Cyrus was when that happened as well. But Cyrus is an incredibly important figure in this entire story. And we'll read two passages from a book, Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus himself makes a declaration about the Jews in Babylon. And he says this in verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and beasts besides the freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem." The 70-year exile of Judah began with the stealing of these vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole. The fall of Babylon would begin with drinking from these vessels. The end of the 70-year exile comes to a conclusion as those very vessels are brought back by hand to Jerusalem. And not only were they brought back, it actually says that Cyrus himself 
handled some of these vessels to make sure that they went back. In Ezra 1 verse 5, it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, gold, goods, beasts, costly wares, besides all the freewill offerings." Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar carried away. The exile began in 605 BC with the deportation of 5,000 people of Judah. And when Cyrus takes over Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he sends them home. And on the first wave of their homegoing tour, 50,000 Jews leave Babylon and they go back to rebuild the temple. So despite the intentions of Nebuchadnezzar, despite the intentions of Belshazzar and even Darius, God was working it out. God's hand was orchestrating it all. God's hand was writing on the wall. In God's hands were Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. God's hand was working it all out in order to bring his plan for Daniel, for Israel, for his son, and for the entire world to come about. Chapters begin and chapters end. The Lord writes the story. You and I must choose. Will we be a part of God's story that he is writing? Or will we live apart from it? Those are your only choices. That's been this theme that's emerged from this series. We can be a part of what he's doing or we can be apart from what he's doing. God's writing a story no matter what. You're in it or you're not. He's writing the story. So how do we apply this, this story? All these stories preach themselves. First of all, this would actually be a better ending to the story. Because this is literally like it ends. But next week we'll have a prologue, which is the story that you all know about Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. Happens after this. We'll talk about lions next week. But here's two things I'd like you to know about this chapter, Daniel chapter 5. And you could kind of dim the lights and if you could do whatever you can to eliminate distraction. Our worship team is going to come up and lead us in a song. We're going to spend some time ministering to each other. Number one thing I want you to know from this passage is that you will reap what you sow. Belshazzar reaped what he sowed. Uh, Explain that in, in English, Pastor. You'll get what's coming to you. You will reap what you sow. God cannot be mocked. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot continuously mock, belittle, undermine, disobey, and rebel against God and expect that his patience won't run out. Don't be deceived. God won't be mocked. You'll say, Pastor, I'm saved. I put my trust in Jesus. That, that's cool. But, but there's consequences for our actions. You see, God delivers us from the punishment and the wrath of our actions through our salvation so that we would live with him for eternity without sin, pain, illness, or death. But there's consequences in this life that if we do not repent from, we will have to face. Sometimes we do repent and we still face those consequences because that is the will of God as well. But I would encourage you, examine your heart. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in Jesus. So if you'd say, yes, that's me, then please, if you're a Christian, would you please, could we please stop taking advantage of God's grace? Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Walk in the light. Walk in the power of the Spirit to abstain from sin. You are free from sin in Christ. So why are you binding yourself in chains keeping you held captive. 
Paul says, how could you who are dead to sin still live in it? As a Christian, I sin daily, and so do you. You say, well, what separates a Christian from a non-Christian when it comes to the issue of sin? What comes to the issue of sin is repentance. Are you convicted of your sin? And when God confronts you with your sin, do you repent of it? And do you push into him and strive by the power of the Spirit to live for him? That's the difference. You're, and I don't even like to, I almost said like, we all make mistakes, we all stumble, but sin's actually not a mistake. Sin's not a stumble. Sin is sin. Sin is when we deliberately rebel against God. And you and I do it daily. Repent of your sin and walk in the light. When someone confronts you lovingly, graciously with a sin, do you war and fight back or do you, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, I I repent and walk in fellowship with them? You're free from sin, live free. There's this concept in the Bible that appears very often. The concept is this analogy of drinking from the cup of God's wrath. And it's talking about judgment that will come upon the world one day for the sins of the world. And my point of bringing that up is that you can only drink from the golden goblets of God's temple for so long without being forced to drink from the goblet of God's wrath. That means if you're sinning and mocking God like Belshazzar was by literally drinking from the temple, he would literally that night drink from the cup of God's wrath. And he would be struck dead. Number two, the writing is on the wall. Are you too busy partying? Are you too busy being distracted by the things of this world to notice the writing on the wall? To notice the signs and warnings that God is placing all around us? Are you too busy worshiping idols to recognize the hand of God moving in your life? I'll tell you a story, not because it's a story I'm proud of, but it's just, it just a story. But on July 3rd of 2019, I was mowing the lawn in my front yard, and I heard from the Lord so clearly that day as I was mowing the lawn. And the next day was the 4th of July, and I was kind of thinking of that. And I immediately became so grieved by the state of our nation in July 2019. I I, I was literally disgusted by things taking place in our nation. You say, yeah, it's those Democrats. Yeah, no, no, that's not. No, I was disgusted by everything not by a party or a president. I was disgusted. And as this disgust came over me, I heard four words as I was mowing the lawn as clear as day, and those four words were, meanie, meanie, shekel, parson. And I wrote down some of the things the Lord shared with me that day, July 3rd, 2019. And what I knew, what God was trying to share with me that day is that this nation can only do so much and only be allowed to go so far before God's wrath will stop us. And then February 2020 came along. And right when that happened, the first thing that came to mind was July 3rd, 2019. Pastor, are you a prophet? No, just God speaks to us all the time, guys. Listen, God's writing's on the wall. Why did God even show me that? just so I could be prepared, I guess, so I could be in prayer, so I could be convicted. Because the desire for us usually is is when we see the writing on the wall is we use our own hands to point out the sins of others. Yeah, yeah, look, look at them. You're right, look, the writing is on the wall. Look at all their sins. But the writing on the wall usually points back at us. We can't even begin to be concerned with the affairs of this world unless we are concerned with the affairs of our own heart. Because this is where... It starts. Now, I'll say a few things that to some may be offensive, but I'm more concerned about God being offended over these things than I am people being offended. Because the writing is on our wall in our country, and some of you need to wake up and see it being written right on. Meanie, meanie, shekel, parson, meanie, meanie, shekel, parson. Our culture has become so obsessed 
with celebrating so many things that God so plainly is grieved over. And, and don't say amen or anything because you missed the point. Like, God is grieved over sin, and our nation and our culture has become so obsessed with organizing parades and entire months around the concept of being prideful, which is what tore down Babylon. Our culture has been so obsessed with waving the flag of every form of sexual perversion and literally physically, even this last week, bowing to confusion, rebellion, mutilation, and sexism of gender ideology. Our culture is so obsessed with dividing everybody by race and culture and income and background, so consumed with worshiping at the altar of fear instead of surrendering to the altar of faith. Our culture is obsessed with bowing down to politicians, influencers, celebrities, and global corporations of every kind, every party, every nominee, and our nation's largest religion is to celebrate the slaughtering of the unborn for the convenience of the living. Even our own country, we, we should care about the plight of others, but our own country has become so consumed with the plight of other countries that we've literally neglected the plight of our own. We're so obsessed with these things that we have failed to recognize that the writing is on the wall. Things are collapsing all around us. We even just saw this last week, this Silicon Valley bank that tanked. Literally days before the bank plunged into non-existence, there were like ski parties that executives from the bank were having, literally not knowing that the writing was on the wall. We fail to realize that we're under spiritual attack of the utmost level and fail to remember there's a living God who will only allow these things for so long. What's distracting you from seeing the writing on the wall? What is God saying? What do you need to be aware of right now? The world and all the sinners. No, no, no. What do you need to be aware of right now in your heart? What's going on in your heart that is grievous to the Father? that we need to submit to him, repent of, and expose to the light? What's going on in your house? What are your kids involved in right now that you have no idea because you're so obsessed with your own thing? What is your spouse thinking about or, or, or being um, drawn to that you're not aware of because you're not spending time with your spouse? What, what are things in your world right now where there's writing on the wall? God's trying to give you warnings, but you're so consumed with... that you've missed it. How are you going to respond when you see the writing on the wall? Do not ignore it. No matter what your view is of how the end times play out, we can say, because they were saying it 2,000 years ago, that Jesus is coming quickly. He comes like a thief in the night. we got to be ready. The writing's on the wall. Are you more concerned about offending people now because you want to share Jesus with them? Or are you concerned by them being offended with you because you didn't tell them about Jesus while they spend eternity apart from him? Either way, people are going to be offended. Choose the right offense. I'm going to pray over us. And I don't like to be doom and gloom preacher, but this is serious stuff. If you walk away with one thing, may it be that salvation belongs to Christ. If you walk away with the next thing, it's you will reap what you sow. Don't take advantage of God's grace. And the third thing is be watching. Be watching for the writings on the wall. There are signs and symbols, the Bible tells us, in the heavens and happening all around us where prophecy is coming to pass sooner and sooner and sooner. And whether it's a thousand years from now or ten minutes from now, I want to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, who comes to judge the living and the dead. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. Your word is not, it's not easy. It's not, it's not always happy, God. Your word is challenging. It's convicting. It's eye-opening. But it also produces joy. And God, more than anything, these, these writings on the wall 
more than to warn us, they're actually invitations to push in closer to you. So God, as we live in this this kingdom and at this time that we live in, would your writing on the wall not cause us to react in fear or point fingers of judgment at others, but instead examine our hearts and let us see these things as invitation to seek you more, to be closer to you, and to reach more for you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. As you stand, we're going to begin to sing, and I'll have a couple people up front that would love to pray for you. And if you need prayer for anything today, if you are in need of physical healing, if you're being tormented mentally, if you've got a relationship issue in your own relationships or in that of your family, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, if you need to stop taking advantage of God's grace, I just invite you, come up to the front as we worship and sing. We'd love to pray for you. If you don't want prayer, if you just want to come and uh, stand before God here at the altar or kneel on these stairs and pray you and God just some time with him. Please do that. Ladina will come up and dismiss you here in just a moment.